الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. I'm fortunate to have given the Isra and Mi'raj talk a number of times and we have considered this historical happening from numerous angles. The psychological condition of the Prophet Muhammad, please be upon him, prior to Isra and Mi'raj and how the Isra and Mi'raj affected upon him. The importance of Salah in Islam and the many gifts that Islam brings with it. Tonight, inshallah, I want to return to the basics and give us a historical rendering of the Israel Mi'raj. Due to limited time, we cannot discuss all its details, but the idea is to discuss the major details, and inshallah, if Allah so wishes, to perhaps introduce to you a few details that you might not have heard before. If you are one of the few that have heard everything that we are about to discuss, then mashallah, even in your case, a reminder benefits the believer. A reminder benefits the believer. First and foremost, my dear brothers, on this particular night and sisters in Islam, we commemorate that which is known as the Isra and the Mi'ad. <coughs> the term Isra means to travel at night or to take at night. And the idea refers to the fact that the Prophet was taken from the mosque at Mecca to the mosque in Palestine known as Al-Masjid Al-Quds or Baytul Maqdis. So this journey, that nightly journey is known as Isra. And Allah refers to this in the Quran we have looked at it just now. And then the Mi'raj from the verb Araja to go up refers to the prophetic ascension. The fact that the Prophet then left the Sama of the dunya and ascended up into the heavens right up to the seventh heaven and beyond what is known as Asidratul Muntaha, the low tree that falls on the edges of the seventh heaven. And he came into the presence of Allah and received the gift that is known as Salah. Not the only gift as we will learn just now, insha'Allah. So Islam is the journey from Mecca to Palestine and back. Wal Mi'raz means the ascent of the Prophet Islam up into the heavens. With regards to the Isra, we find Allah saying in the Quran, Aul Bilal Shaitan Rajim Rahman Rahim, Subhanallah Asra bi Abdihi Laylam min al Masjid al Harami ilal Masjid al Aqsa. All praise is due to Allah, that being that is free from defects, and that being that is free from effects. He will take his life at night from the holy mosque in Mecca to the distant mosque in Palestine, around which he had placed Barakah. I want you to take note of the fact that Allah says he had taken his slave at night. Allah does not say he had taken the soul of his slave. Allah does not say he had taken the consciousness of his slave. Rather, Allah says he had taken his slave. And that's automatically gives you the prominent view that is the view of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah that this journey was not merely a journey of the mind and it was not a dream, but rather it was a physical journey. The Prophet Allah physically traveled from Mecca to Palestine and from there up into the heavens. Another point we can learn is that Allah finds no problem in calling the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his Abd. And Abd literally translates as slave. Sometimes people have a problem in calling the Prophet Allah 
the slave of Allah. Why do they have a problem with calling him the slave of Allah? Because the word slave normally has negative connotations to it. It has negative connotations to it. But in the context of Allah, as being the slave of Allah, then there's no negative connotations over there. It is actually a statement of praise when you call yourself the slave of Allah. We notice this even in the dunya. I've given an example of this before. Sometimes people are ashamed that the job that they have might not be a job that, that there's a certain amount of prestige out there in society. So we don't easily say perhaps, I'm a gardener, I'm a cleaner. But if you are Mandela's gardener and Mandela's cleaner, you say it with pride. Because Mandela's a cleaner. Because Mandela's a gardener. So it's the same thing with the term slave. The term slave on its own, even in isolation to the one who you are a slave to, might be, might indicate to some deficiency. But the moment when you say that you are the slave of Allah, then it doesn't. When you say that you are the slave of Allah, then it is a term of honor. Then also in that word slave is a reminder. The difference between a slave and a servant. If I don't want to work for you, I find another employer. Because I'm merely your servant, I'm merely your maid, I'm merely your cleaner. And if I don't like you, I find somebody else. But the slave does not have that option. A slave is the property of the owner, and a slave cannot automatically decide to have another master. There will be consequences. And this applies to the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And it also applies to the Prophet of Allah, and Allah knows best. My dear brothers and sisters, the Isra occurred three years before Hijrah on the 27th of Rajab. The Prophet of Allah speaks in the hadith, it comes in Bukhari, hadith 3342, he says, the roof of my house was opened. It opened the roof while I was at Mecca. And Jibreel descended through the roof. He then opened my chest and washed it with the water of Zamzam. He then brought a container filled with wisdom and hauled its contents into my chest cavity. And then he sealed my heart. Whenever I read this piece, the first thing that comes to mind is, Akshay Christian is light. This light. The first thing that comes to mind is that particular statement. And to focus on the idea that it was a reality that this actually happened to the Prophet, there are numerous authentic hadiths where the Sahaba say, we saw the scar wounds that was created by that opening that night. How would they know such a thing? That such an operation in the first place is possible. That a heart could be taken out, a heart could be cleansed, masalan. that's what exactly what Christian Bana does. But down that line, and Allah knows best, and then it can be placed back into it, and it can be sealed, and the human can survive that particular thing. It would not be known to the Arabs of that time. The fact that Christian Bahana did a similar thing, not the exact same thing, many years after that, more than a thousand years after that, just confirms that this is a true story, and Allah knows best. <coughs> Again, we say to those who do tend to deny these historical facts of Islam, who tend to deny miracles. Before Christian Barnard, you would have said impossible. Now Christian Barnard shows you it is possible, now you accept it. In a like manner, there are numerous things regarding the Islamic Mi'raj that people have found reason to doubt. Whenever I've given this talk, I have focused on an objection or two, and I've provided answers to it from the authentic sources of Islam. Tonight we will focus on three objections as well, and Allah knows best. In another report of the same incident, it, does, it appears as if Israel Mi'raj started in the mosque at Makkah itself. 
The Prophet says, while I was at the bait in the Hatim, the Hatim is another term for the Hijr Ismail, that half moon circle over there. And I don't know if you are aware of it, but the half moon circle over there actually is there to indicate that the Kaaba stretches still there. Many people think the Kaaba is a square. It's not a square. It's actually a rectangle. And during the time of the Prophet that rectangle was severely damaged by floods and the like. And they decided to rebuild it. And then Quraysh was a sinful people, a people given to polytheism and many other sins. They realized that you could not build a mosque with haram money, unlawful money. And the only lawful money that they had available was to build the square. So they built the square that we see today as the Kaaba, and then they put that Hidr Ismail there to indicate to you this is actually also part of the Kaaba. We didn't have enough money to build this particular place. And it was left like that up till today, and Allah knows best. Which is why if you learn Hajj, they tell you you must make tawaf around the Kaaba and around the Hidr Ismail. If you go in the Hidr Ismail when you make tawaf, as I tawaf a brick. Because technically, you just walk right through the Kaaba. While you're supposed to walk around the Kaaba. That's what Tawaf means. Around. Circumambulate. Circle the Kaaba. And not inside. And Allah knows best. So the Prophet says he was in the Hatim. And between a state of sleep and wakefulness, then three men, three men came. One walking in the middle. I was brought a bowl filled with wisdom and Iman. And my chest was split from my upper chest to the middle of my chest. My heart was washed with zamzam and it was filled with wisdom and iman. Then a beast was brought. A beast was brought that was smaller than a mule, but bigger than a donkey. Smaller than a mule, bigger than a donkey. In another report that comes in Sahih Muslim 162, Prophet says, it was a tall white beast. Its name was Al-Buraq. Its name was Al-Buraq. And Burak, loosely translated, means lightning. Lightning. So there was this animal by the name of lightning. And the Prophet rode him on that particular night. The Prophet says his step was the extent of his sight. So every footstep the animal took, it went as far as you could potentially see. I was mounted on him, and we started traveling until we reached Baytul Maqdis. I tethered him to the ring outside of the mosque. That the Ambiya are accustomed to tether the animals too. And then I entered the mosque and I prayed two rakahs, nafal salah there. I then led the prophets and messengers in salah. And then afterwards, I and Jibreel ascended to the heavens. The prophet mentions in another version of this hadith in Sahih Muslim 2375 that while on the Burak, I passed by the grave of Musa, which was in Al Kathib al Ahmar, in a red hillock. And as I passed by his grave, I noticed him making salah in the grave. Nabi Musa in his grave, making salah. We will refer back to this, inshallah. So now the Prophet is in the mosque. He led the Ambiya and the Rusul in salah. And now Jibril takes him by the hand and Jibril starts ascending up into the heavens. When the Prophet of Allah comes to the gate of the first heaven, Jibril says to the guardian, open. The guardian responds, who is this? Jibreel says, it is Jibreel. He asks, is there anyone with you? Jibreel answers, yes, Muhammad is with me. The guardian asks, has he been made a Nabi yet? Jibreel answers, yes, 
and then the guardian opens the gate. And then they ascend into the first heaven. Now I'm going to mention the Ambiya that is met in various levels. But before we continue that, just understand that before the Prophet Islam entered any level, they met a guardian. And the method and style was exactly the same. Who are you? I am Jibreel. Who is that with you? Is there somebody with you? Yes. Who is that with you? Muhammad. Was he the messenger yet? Yes. And only after that it is opened. The Prophet of Allah, however, now at this moment in time, ascends into the first heaven. He says, I saw a man with a large crowd of people to his right and a large crowd of people to his left. Whenever he looked to his, to his right, he became happy and he laughed. And whenever he looked to his left, he became sorrowful and he cried. This man then said to me, Muhammad, Welcome to the pious prophet and the pious son. Welcome to the pious prophet and the pious son. Now every Nabi that the Prophet will meet will greet him by the statement, Welcome to the pious prophet. Most of them, however, say, And the pious brother. Only two Nabi say to him, And the pious son. This is the first Nabi. To say to him, The pious son. So somehow the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is of the progeny of this man. Who is this man? Adam and yeah, my dear brothers, yeah, I need to take your hand because you also, you are also the progeny of a prophet. You are the progeny of Nabi Adam And from that point of view, everybody here and everybody out there, we are all relatives. And as how you should have a care and concern for yourself, have a care and concern for every human being out there. Your cousin, your cousin. How are you going to go to Jannah and escape the Al-Fire? And how are they going to go to Jannah and escape the Al-Fire? But anyway, to go on. I asked the Prophet Muhammad, who is this Jibreel? He replied, it is Adam. And the people to his right and left are the souls of his progeny. Those to his right are the inhabitants of Jannah. And those to his left are the inhabitants of the Al-Fire. And that is why he laughs when he looks to the right. And that is why he cries when he looks to the left. Jibril again took my hand and he ascended. And he said, open. In this manner he met Nabi Idris, Nabi Musa, Nabi Isa, Nabi Ibrahim. In this particular narration, Anas, the narrator says, I can't remember who was on which level. But I do remember Adam was on the first and Ibrahim was on the sixth. Actually, will a man agree with him with regards to Adam and disagree with him with regards to Nabi Ibrahim? I will give you the levels of the Ambiya just now. But Allah goes on and he says, Everyone said, Welcome to the pious prophet and the pious brother. The only other person that said, Welcome to the pious son was Nabi Ibrahim. And Nabi Ibrahim was not in the sixth level. As I said, Nabi Ibrahim was in the seventh level. In one riwayat, it says that when the Prophet approached Nabi Ibrahim, Nabi Ibrahim was sitting with his back resting against Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur. What is Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur? You might not be aware, but there are two Kaabas. There's a Kaaba on earth that we make tawaf around, and there's a Kaaba in the heavens that the Malaika make tawaf around. And the Kaaba in the heavens that is known as Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur, the oft-visited place. And it appears in authentic ahadith that every day 
70,000 angels come and make tawaf there. Those angels that come and make tawaf there, they've never been there before and they will never return. So every day, 70,000 angels come there that's never been there and they will never come back. So it makes you wonder how many angels are there. There's a hadith that speaks of a particular night. I won't mention that night tonight. But there's a particular night where the angels descend and all they do is they just stand on earth. They just stand like that. And the hadith says that when they come to earth and they stand here, there is no place on earth that nobody is in except that there's an angel there. Just to give you an idea of the amount of malaika that Allah has created. Allah According to the authentic hadith, that's in the hadith that comes in Muslim Ahmad, hadith 17,378. In the first heaven, the Prophet of Allah met Nabi Adam. In the second heaven, he met Nabi Yahya and Nabi Isa. They go together. Nabi Yahya, John the Baptist. Isa, Jesus. So John the Baptist set the path in the way for Nabi Isa. In the third heaven, they met Nabi Yusuf. In the fourth heaven, they met Nabi Idris. In the fifth heaven, they met Nabi Harun. In the sixth heaven, they met Nabi Musa. And when the Prophet passed, when Nabi Musa he started crying. He started crying. When he was asked, he responded, Oh my Rabb, this young man who have made the Prophet after me, more of his ummah in number and virtue will enter Jannah. So he cried that he did not have the virtue of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and that his ummah did not have the virtue of this ummah. Special Nabi, special ummah. We will return to that idea. And in the seventh heaven, the Prophet of Allah met Nabi Ibrahim. Yeah, the Prophet of Allah clearly says, the Bayt Ma'mur was left to me, and it is a house where 70 angels pray, and they never return to it. And Allah knows best. It is also mentioned in these authentic ahadith that when the Prophet came to the place known as Sidratul Muntaha, which is the lottery at the furthest ends of the seventh heaven, it is a place, not even Jibreel, the archangel Jibreel, that crossed further than that. The Prophet says when he came to that place, he saw colors, the like of which he had never ever seen before. And when he looked at the Sidratul Muntaha, he noticed that the fruits were uh, the fruits were as big as large earthenware jugs or jars. Now what I'm saying is I'm not saying this size, I'm saying that size. You know, Alibaba 40 thieves size. That is what I mean. When the 40 thieves eat in the jars, so we must think how big that is. And Allah knows best. So the Prophet of Allah says that the fruit of the Sidratul Muntah was that size. And its leaves was the size of elephant ears. And as he said, it was covered in colors, the like of which he had never seen. And on top of it, there were moths made of solid gold. Moths made of solid gold. One of the ayahs that was recited tonight is, and the Sidra is covered by what covers it? How does it go? Right. And according to the authentic hadith, that refers to the moths made of gold that cover it occasionally. And Allah knows best. My dear brothers, if you study the books written by Kufar, you will see so many things that impress you. The idea you're thinking, who can be a with the idea? When you study Quran and Hadith, you see it's there. You see it's there. I love for the one, I die for the one. Muslims man, I do a yakatah. Yakatah and salah. Inna salati wa nusiki wa mahiyaya wa mati. Lillahi rabbil alameen. 
And obviously, we're the only people that believe in one God, a real one God. So who's saying that every day? I live for the one and I die for the one. Only us. And I'm going to steal. And I'm going to steal. 300. I live for the one, I die for the one. So I'm going to get a cartoon, Kung Fu Panda. Frequently, the road you take to avoid your destiny is where you meet it. Say, no, no, no. Say, no, no, no. I run away from Qadha, right into Qadha. They just change the wording of it. You understand? But that there is an example of Al-Hikmat Al-Dalat Al-Mu'min. Though the hadith itself is weak, the meaning is sound. Wisdom is the lost animal of the believer. Wisdom is the lost animal of the believer. They are technically sitting with your sheep that walked away and they're putting it in their books. But it's your sheep. Yeah, but your scarpy had a hard time. The Prophet of Allah goes on and then he says, After I saw the Sidra to Muntaha, I saw two rivers. In fact, four rivers. Two of these rivers are internal to Jannah. They don't go outside of Jannah. And two of these rivers, they start in Jannah, but they flow out into the earth. Ulama have different understandings of what is meant by that. But one of the understandings is that these rivers are rivers of, of plentiful bounty. Especially if you have ever been in Egypt and you've seen the power that the Nile has on the lives of the Arabs, you would know what, 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 what it means to them. That area where the Nile flows through, that is known as the Fertile Delta. If that area didn't exist, most Egyptians would be dead. And Allah knows best. So in this hadith, it comes clearly that the two that flow out into the dunya, they are the rivers Nile and the rivers Euphrates. The rivers Euphrates. The Prophet of Allah goes on and he says, Jibreel then offered to me milk and wine. He offered to me milk and wine. And he said, drink any of this. I chose the milk. After choosing the milk, the Prophet Jibreel said to the Prophet of Allah, you have been guided to the natural way. And you taken the khamar, the intoxicants, your entire ummah would have gone astray. But you have been guided to the pure and natural way. Islam is the natural way. We've said it more than once from this member. People tend to think, we tell the kuffar, Islam is the solution to all your problems. And then the kuffar asks, so are you going to solve my problems? And then you say, if you go to Zina, we'll you 100 verses, you're unmarried. And if you marry, we stone you to death. And if you steal, we cut off your head. Then there is not a solution that Islam has to offer the world. The solution Islam has to offer the world is that it recognizes all natural needs. And it seeks to fulfill natural needs in a natural way to a natural degree. That there is the solution to the problems of humanity. And only after you've offered humanity that, as I put out of the last verse, right, no hata'ana fly. No hata'ana fly. After Allah has given you everything, so that you can have a comfortable life. And so that your needs are met. Now it goes that way. But you need to understand that that punishment of Islam is not befitting in a country like this. Where the ways of zina are facilitated. And the ways of nikah is made difficult. That day is only in a proper Islamic country. Where the ways of nikah are facilitated. And the ways of zina are made difficult. And Allah knows best. Right. So the Prophet of Allah, he continues. He says, 
I then came in the presence of my Lord. And my Lord made compulsory upon my Ummah 50 salawat per day. I accepted it from Allah. I descended. When I descended, I met Nabi Musa again. And Nabi Musa asked me what had transpired. I told him what had happened and that my Ummah had now been charged to make 50 salawat a day. Nabi Musa said to me, I have a lot of experience with humans. I've had a lot of problems with Banu Israel. I am telling you, Prophet Muhammad, your people will not be able to manage this. Go back to Allah and ask Allah for a decrease. <coughs> the Prophet Muhammad then returned to Allah and Allah reduced it by five. He went back to Nabi Musa and Nabi Musa said the same. He returned to Allah Allah reduced it by five. And Allah reduced it by five and Allah reduced it by five. What did the Prophet of Allah say every time he came in the presence of Allah? He said, Ya Rabbi, oh my Lord, Inna ummati du'afa. My people are weak people. Atsaaduhum wa kulubuhum wa asma'uhum. Their bodies are weak. Their hearts are weak. Their hearing is weak. Wa abdanuhum. And physically in all senses they are weak. Fakhaffif anna. So reduce this load of Allah. Reduce this load. And Allah reduced it and Allah reduced it. Until Allah reduced it to five. Then the Prophet of Allah went down and he told Nabi Musa. And then Nabi Musa told him, Go back, your ummah won't be able to manage five also. And then the Prophet of Allah said, It has just come for Allah. I'm too modest to ask Allah again. I already asked Allah nine times and Allah gave me. I'm too modest, I'm too shy for the many times that I've gone and Allah had reduced. At that moment in time, a call rang out and Allah said, I have completed my command and I have facilitated it for my servants. The statement by me shall not be changed. Five is what I said and five is what it will remain. Rather what I offer you is this. I will reward them for every single good deed ten times it's equal. Every single good, good deed ten times it's equal. And then Allah said, it is five but it is fifty. It is five but it is fifty. It is five in actual number, but it is 50 in minimum reward. It is 50 in minimum reward. So if you merely made the salah, you are fulfilling the main legal requirements, the shurut, and the arkan, the essentials of salah, then the minimum that Allah will give you for every salah is 10. But if you add certain other things, they will increase. Such as when you make the salah in jama'ah, in congregation, in the mosque, then Allah will give you 25 to 27 times. And if you make it in Masjid Nabawi, Allah will add it a thousand times. And if you make it in the Haram Mosque, Allah will increase it? 100,000 times. So, there's opportunity for increase upon increase upon increase. But the minimum by Allah is 10. The minimum by Allah is 10. And then the Prophet of Allah said the following, a hadith that we commonly hear, but we might not have ever thought that it is connected to Mi'raj. وَمَنْ هَمَّ بِحَسَنَةٍ Whosoever intends a good deed فَلَمْ يَعْمَلْهَا But it does not do the good deed كُتِبَتْ لَوْ حَسَنَةٍ It is still recorded as one good deed. He intended it, he didn't do it. Allah still gives him one good deed. فَإِنْ عَمِلَهَا And if he goes on to do it كُتِبَتْ لَوْ عَشَرًا It is recorded as ten good deeds. وَمَنْ هَمَّ بِسَيْئَةٍ Whosoever intends to do a sin فَلَمْ يَعْمَلْهَا And then he does not do it for the pleasure of Allah. Lam tuktab shay'an, nothing is recorded. No bad deed is recorded, because he didn't do it. Fine, amilaha, but if he does it, 
كتبت سيئة واحدة it is recorded merely as one sin it is recorded merely as one sin my dear brothers here we are again reminded or rather we are reminded of the generosity of Allah if you intend the sin and you don't do it nothing recorded if you intend a good deed you don't do it you still get one reward if you perform a good deed you get ten rewards if you commit a sin Allah only records one against you that day is the generosity of our Lord that is known as Allah. The Prophet of Allah did enter Jannah and he was shown many things in Jannah. He tells us that he came across a river on the edges of Jannah. Or rather on the edges of the river was lying domes of hollow pearls. And when he was asked, what is this? He was told by Jibreel, this is kawthar which Allah had given you. Its soil he found was made of strong smelling musk. And Allah knows best. Regarding the Anbiya that the Prophet met on that night, he goes out of his way to describe some of the Anbiya to us. He tells us, for example, that Abu Musa was a dark-skinned man of average build, with wavy hair, like the men of Shamu'a. Like the men of Shamu'a. So we don't know the men of Shamu'a, so we don't know. But the idea is that he was dark-skinned. So he was a dark-skinned individual with wavy hair. Nabi Isa was a medium-built man with a reddish complexion as if he had just come out of a bathhouse. You know when somebody comes out of a shower and their face is red due to the heat? So Nabi Isa looked like that. And the reason for that is because he was fair-skinned. And apparently Nabi Isa was a very handsome man and Allah knows best. The Prophet said the closest man that I know that resembled Nabi Isa looks was Urwat ibn Mas'ud as Thakafi. And then there was Nabi Ibrahim. Of all the people I know, Nobody resembles Nabi Ibrahim more than me, the Prophet referred to himself. We have already mentioned to you that he had led those Ambiya in prayer. What you might not know is that that night the Prophet was introduced to certain Malaika that he had not met before. One of which was Malik. Malik, the angel that is in charge of Yal Fire. And when the Prophet met Malik, he was told, Malik is standing behind you. You should greet him. Because of, because of the, 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 the fact that he is a, what do you call it, an individual of authority. And as the Prophet was turning around, Malik rushed to greet the Prophet first, to show that yes, I might be a person of rank and I might be a person of authority, but you are Khairul Bariya. You are the best of creation. And it is my duty that I should greet you first before you greet me. Not only did the Prophet meet good people on that night, including prophets and messengers, but he met others, including the Jannah. The jar was shown to him that night, and the jar was shown to him to have a defective eye which protrudes an eye that floats like a grape in a bowl. Now, we know that on this particular night, the Prophet received the gift that is known as the gift of Salah. And I will have a look at that gift just now. But did you know that there were two other gifts the Prophet received on this night? The second being the last verses of Surah Baqarah was revealed to the Prophet on the night of Mi'raj. And third of which, which applies to us directly. Here is a law. The law is, if you commit any sin, you are worthy of going to Yalfaya. If you commit one sin, regardless of type, category, gravity, or minority. So if the sin is a kabira or a sahira, a major sin or a minor sin, you are worthy of going to Yalfaya. Unless Allah showers you with his mercy. And the lowest punishment that you get in Yal fire is that you are given shoes of fire to wear, which is so hot that your brains will boil. 
Then the government wants them. You are worthy of Jannah. And minimum punishment is shoes of fire. So what your brains will boil. Anybody here in the mosque that's free from that? Anybody you think outside is free of that? So the answer is no. The way to escape that and to be worthy of the mercy of Allah is to make tawbah. Is to repent every sin that you have ever, ever committed. On this particular night, Allah went the extra mile. Allah said, I am prepared to forgive every sin out there without tawbah even, but only for people that I select, except for one sin. And that sin is shirk and kufr. So as long as you are not guilty of shirk and kufr, even if you have not made tawbah, you are still subject to the mercy of Allah. Even if you are a person that had killed a hundred men, even if you are a person that had raped, that had murdered, that had stolen, even then, then you are subject to the mercy of Allah. If Allah so desires, Allah will forgive you. That is entirely in the mercy of Allah. And that was decreed as the third gift on the snap. Later when the Prophet came back to earth, Quraysh denied this message. Now here, my dear brothers, coming back to the statement I made in the beginning. The authentic view is that the Prophet performed these journeys with his physical body. Had the Prophet told Quraysh, I dreamt I was in Palestine, they wouldn't have had a problem. Had he told them I dreamt I was in the seventh heaven, they wouldn't have had a problem. So why did they have a problem? Because they understood from the Prophet's statement that he said he was physically in Palestine last night. And he was physically on Mi'raz last night. So they were upset and they decided to test him. Now they couldn't test him regarding what happened in the heavens. And we'll have a look at that just now. So they decided to test him on what they knew. Many of them had been to Palestine. Many of them had been to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Many of them knew it well. So they decided to interrogate him regarding the details of what Masjid Al-Aqsa looked like. The Prophet of Allah himself says in Hadith, Sahih Muslim 172, when they decided to test me, they tested me in the Hizr Ismail, in the presence of the rest of the Meccans. And I was extremely stressed, because on the journey I made no effort to memorize anything that I saw, and I couldn't remember all the details. And suddenly they were interrogating me, and at that moment in time, a picture of Al-Majr Al-Aqsa appeared in front of me. A picture that was moving in different angles as they were asking me the questions. And I could physically see Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. So as they are asking me the question, where was the ring located? I was looking at the building and seeing, okay, it's there. And I was answering them. Now today's time, if I tell you, I'm going to show you a picture like of my iPad. Going <coughs> MacBook Pro. <laughs> you wouldn't be too impressed. Because we don't have that I'm like, as possible. But see again, Islam precedes the idea. Islam precedes the idea, which is why I take my literal head off to the alim that said, Islam is not modern. Islam is pre-modern. Islam was there before modernity came there. Modernity got in the after now. for the idea. You understand that you could actually have a house, and it could be projected like that, and it could be turning, and Allah knows best. Like always when I think of the idea of angels writing down your deeds, I find myself, it will know for a kicker, just like Because normally when we think of that, we think of paper and pen. But why should it be like that? Why should it be like that? Maskin said, I'm technology, but there was no harm in it. He's sitting with it already, and Allah knows best. Allah knows best. Like, 
So it does mean that the Prophet of Allah was aided by Allah. There is this issue on this night. Did the Prophet of Allah see his Lord? Did the Prophet of Allah see his Lord? Yeah, even the Sahaba of Ramun they died. Aisha Allah said, any man that tells you that the Prophet of Allah saw his Lord, he's lying. He's lying. And there's a support to that. Abu Dhar al-Anum says, Sa'altu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, al-ra'ayta rabbak. I asked the Messenger of Allah, did you see your Lord? And he answered, Nurun anna arabu. There was light. How could I see him? So when the Prophet al-Islam crossed beyond Sidratul Muntaha, there was a wall of light. And he couldn't see through the wall of light. So the one view of the ulama, which is the strongest of the views, is that the Prophet of Allah did not see Allah. Though all pious people will see Allah in the year after, inshallah. But on that particular night, the Prophet did not see Allah. There's another view. Which other Sahaba had, including Abdullah ibn Abbas, that yes, the Prophet of Allah did see Allah. But he did not see Allah with his eyes, he saw Allah with his heart. And they refer to, for example, one of the verses that was recited tonight, Ma kadabal fu'adu ma ra'a. The heart does not belie what it saw. So he didn't see Allah, with his eyes, he saw Allah with his heart. And Allah knows best. This hadith was also in Sahih Muslim. So whether you believe that the Prophet saw Allah, whether you believe he didn't see Allah, then there's not one of those issues that were taken out in the fold of Islam. Then there's an issue in business, a difference of opinion amongst the Sahaba and we expect the difference of opinion to continue. Now before I conclude, there's just some objections that I wanted to focus on. But before that statement, let's make this statement. Would you deny that the Isra and the Mi'raj is a special journey? Definitely a special journey, isn't it? By a special person, the best human ever. On a special mount, never seen before, Burak, lightning himself. With a special companion, the Archangel Jibreel, to a special location that no one had ever crossed into, beyond Sidratul Muntaha, to meet a special being. You can't beat a being, beat a being higher than that, which is Allah, to receive a special gift, which is Salah. So now I ask you the following night, or rather I ask you the following question. Isn't this a special night? That's from beginning to end. Special journey, special person, special mount, special companion, to a special location, to meet a special being, to receive a special gift. So isn't this a special night? The answer is decidedly is. But here, my dear brothers, you need to understand who you are and what you are. What are you? You are a Muslim. And as a Muslim, you have to do things in accordance with the teachings of the Prophet of Allah. Peace be upon him. You cannot force people to be in the mosque tonight. And you cannot also keep people away from the mosque. This is permissible. And that is permissible. If people want to speak about an historical incident, in the life of the Prophet especially for the purposes of teaching and learning, then 100% permissible. There might be those that say it isn't. Then there's others who would rather come to the mosque and force people to be in the mosque. You also don't have the right to do that. Because this was not the habit of the Sahaba to congregate, to, to congregate on this particular night. So whoever stays in home, permissible. Whoever comes here, permissible. You want to recite something because it's a holy night? Bismillah. It is permissible to recite before this night, it is permissible to recite after this night. Without an objection from Allah and His Rasul, it is permissible to recite this night also. Whether you want to recite Surah Yasin, or Surah Mul, or Surah, whatever, we shouldn't be excessive. 
and consider just simply because the Prophet didn't do it, it is a bad thing. And Allah knows best. There's details to that. This is not the place to discuss that. Some objections have been raised against the Israel Mi'raj. Over the years, I've answered many objections. One objection that is raised is, why does Allah not mention the Isra, or rather the Mi'raj, was the Isra in the Quran? Why does Allah only mention the Isra? Well, the first answer is, according to some ulama, the Mi'raj is also mentioned in the Quran. Those ayat that was recited, There are some ulama that actually says that that refers to Mi'raj. Because you'll find it mentioned in the, in the, in the Sidrat al-Muntaha. At the Sidrat al-Muntaha. Who is it referring to? Definitely the Prophet Islam. And the Prophet Islam is present at that moment in time at Sidrat al-Muntaha. So Mi'raj definitely is mentioned in the Quran, in that particular verse. Who is it that they saw the first time and the second time? Okay, right, they know the Ma'adafa. Some say this Jibreel, some say this Allah. The more authentic view is that they actually saw Jibreel on those two locations. But the ayah clearly says that the Prophet saw him a second time at Sidratul Muntaha. The only time the Prophet of Allah was ever at Sidratul Muntaha was on Mi'araj night. So Mi'araj is mentioned in the Quran. But what if it wasn't mentioned in the Quran? What if it wasn't? For example, Allah knew full well that the Quraysh would test the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him. And Allah knew full well that they would test him only on the one, the Israel, not the Mi'raj. So why go out of his way to mention a lot of details regarding the, 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 the Mi'raj? It is sufficient for those true believers that it is mentioned in the authentic Ahadith. Because the true believers are Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. They believe in the Sunnah, they believe in the Hadith. As for Quraysh, it is sufficient to mention for them that there was Israel. So they would actually test the Prophet of Allah because they had been over there, they had the ability to test him. So that is why the Isra only is mentioned and the others is not mentioned. Also, my dear brothers, for those who, of you who would understand this final point, technically if Allah didn't mention the Mi'raj at all in the Quran, the fact that Allah has mentioned the Isra is the equivalent of mentioning the Mi'raj. Because the Isra is actually the first step of the Mi'raj. The Prophet made the whole journey. First on earth, he moved from Mecca to Palestine, then up into the Sama. But technically, the entire journey that we freely call Mi'raj started in Mecca, and then it went like this, and then up. So the first stage of Mi'raj was actually Isra. This is equal to the Qabr. This is equal to the Qabr. Sahaba would always find Uthman sitting on the edge of a Qabr and crying. To such a degree that is, Beard would get wet. His beard would get wet with his tears. So it was told to him that why are you doing this? Jannah and Jannah is mentioned to you, but you don't cry. But when you sit in the grave, then you sit and cry. Then Uthman al Ramu said, Inna al Qabra awwal awwal manzirim in manazil al akhirah. The Qabr is the first step into the year after. It is the first step into the year after. Fa'inna jamilhu, if you are safe. From punishment in the grave, then whatever comes after that will be easier than that. But if you are not safe from punishment in the grave, then whatever comes after that is worse than that. So the grave is the one that I fear. The grave is the one that I fear. And the Prophet also had said, I've never seen an ugly sight, except that the grave is an ugly sight.
The point I am being that the Ghraib is considered the first step into the Akhirah. As how the Isra is considered the first step of the Mi'raj, and Allah knows best. You must have noticed that some of the reports are actually contradictory. They put the Nabi on one level in the one report, and then a different level on another report. In the beginning it appeared that the Mi'raj started in the Prophet's house, but I gave you another report that said that it started elsewhere. There's a simple solution to all of it. The Prophet was first collected in his house, then he was taken to the mosque itself, and from there the journey started. But let's say we didn't know that solution. Some people say because there are some contradictory reports, we must reject the entire concept of Mi'raj and Isra. So there are many answers ulama give. Answer number one that ulama give, they say, the fact that there are certain contradictory reports regarding certain details doesn't change the fact that all the reports agree that Mi'raj occurred and Isra occurred. So why do you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw the bathwater, if it's problematic, but keep the baby. That's number one. Number two, do you know any signs where the scholars of the science didn't sometimes contradict one another? So why are you not rejecting that science? Why do you want to reject hadith? Or you want to reject certain reports in hadith because some parts of it might appear contradictory. On top of it, the ulama have studied all the related ahadith and using the signs known to the ulama as mustalah al-hadith, hadith, methodology and terminology, they have deciphered what is authentic and what is not. So they actually indicate to us what is authentic and what is not. So there is no fear with regards to all of them. Some people say there are impossible matters that is narrated in this uh, hadith on the Isra and the Mi'raj. We don't accept these impossible things. Have I not shown two of these impossible things to be acceptable things in our time? The one that the Prophet's heart was, uh, his chest was opened and his heart was taken out and was put back. Thanks to Christian Barnard, we know now that it's possible. What about the other one? Thanks to modern technology and, and things like iPads and the like and projectors, we know that it is also possible to see a picture of a building while I'm not there and the picture being a three-dimensional picture and the picture evolving. A previous generation would have said that it's impossible, but now that we know that it is possible. Yeah, as a true believer, the question that you must ask yourself is this, what is beyond the ability of Allah? And what is the ability of Allah? Allah says in the Quran, Inna ma amruhu arada kun All Allah has to do when he wants a thing to be, is say to it, be, and it is. So what is there beyond a person that has that ability? He doesn't need to even say, he just says, be, and it is. Be if it is. Yeah, I just want to pause for a moment. I've heard some people saying in lectures, Allah's creative power is so fast that it actually comes into existence by the kafi one noon. Between the kaf and the noon, is kun. There's a kaf and there's a noon. So between the kaf and the noon, the thing Allah wants to create already comes into existence. Please, my dear brother, that is contrary to the teachings of Islam. The ayah says, Allah says, kun fa ta'kib. Then after that, ya kun, the thing is. If you are saying that it's happening by the kaf or noon, then this is actually happening. Allah says to you, ku! And then it comes into existence, and after it's existing, Allah says, Can mm. <laughs> <laughs> Allah know? You can't make perfection more perfect, man. To say kun, that's perfection! Now you want to make perfection even more perfect! And now you're creating a problem. 
Sayyidina wa Allah says it. Allah says kun fayakun. Be and it is. Not ku. Then it comes. What's that I know? Allah knows. Yes. Then also, my dear brothers, these things that some people say is impossible, it can't happen. Why is it impossible to them? It is impossible to them because it's a miracle. Do you know what is the definition of a miracle according to the ulama? The definition of a miracle according to the ulama is a thing that's contrary to the norm. So technically, all a miracle is, is not the way Allah normally does it. That's all a miracle is. It's not the way Allah normally does it. When Allah created this world, Allah created certain laws in this world such as gravity. So if I jump away from the earth, the earth pulls me back. But what if there was another dimension where there wasn't gravity? Where everybody, when they did that, they would float away from earth. And suddenly a guy came and did that, and he would be pulled back to earth. Wouldn't everybody be amazed? <gasps> what if there was another world? Where if people walked on water, they didn't sink into it. And then you came and walked on water and sunk. What do they say? <gasps> Miracle! <laughs> Technically, my dear brother, nature, as they call it. Some people call it mother nature. There's no such thing. Nature is merely sunnatullah fil art, the habit of Allah on the earth. It is how Allah normally creates. You understand? And Allah obviously has the option to change his mind. They change anyway, style. Don't Allah say style change if he wants to. And Allah knows? Yes. So some things they have a problem with. They say there are prophets seen in more than one place. One moment I'll be Musa is in a grave making salah, next moment is in Palestine. Next moment is in the Samar. Technically, if you know the power of kun, is that a problem? Kun. Right, lata kun, kun. Lata kun, kun. Huh? It can be happening repeatedly. Be here, don't be here anymore. Be here now. <coughs> That's one answer. And there are numerous other answers like that. Who said they made the physical Nabi Musa? It could have been his spirit. You understand? Didn't necessarily mean, need to be his. The physical being, though we prefer the physical understanding, then Allah knows best. But again, for a person who believes in the power of Allah, that is nothing. Then others say, doesn't it come in hadith that when you die, your actions come to an end except for three things? Sadaqa Zariya, knowledge that is benefited from, and a pious son that made dua for you, but the other being Musa's making salah in the grave. How is that possible? Isn't it supposed to be all your deeds come to an end? So one of the simple answers to that is, all your deeds that give you reward come to an end, except for those three deeds. And if you look at those three deeds, Sadaqa Zariya, the major point there is that you're getting a reward. And Ilmun Yunta Farabi, knowledge that people are so benefiting from, the major point there is that you're getting a reward. And a pious child making dua for you, the major point there is that you are getting the reward, though that is your son. So technically what that means is not that you will stop doing things, rather it means the opportunity for reward will not be there. In fact, when we are in Jannah, our very breathing will be zikr. When we breathe, we'll breathe. Subhanallah, Allahu Akbar. That will be our breath. We will technically be dhikr machines in Allah knows best. But that is not a place for reward. That is not a place where you earn reward. That is a place where you receive reward. And Allah knows best. Some people say, 
The Prophet went up into the heavens, up into the seventh heaven. But the atmosphere is only a certain distance around the earth. If you cross beyond the atmosphere, there's no way to breathe. How would the Prophet be able to survive there? So yeah, my dear brothers, we make it simple and we ending off now. Either you believe in Allah, his messenger, and authentic hadith, or you don't. If you do believe in Allah, his messenger, authentic hadith, then all you need to know is the authentic report say the Prophet did it like that. And besides that, Allah is the master of Kun. Allah just has to say B. NASA must build a suit. Allah says B without a suit. Who is the one that created the, the fish in the sea? To breathe while they are in the sea. What is it for that same Allah to have you in the sea and breathing? We don't know. There might be animals existing out in space without air. So what is it for Allah to make you the equal of that animal? In fact, what is it for Allah to make you the first guy like that? It's nothing. It's nothing to a being that says Kun. And if you are a being, you don't believe in Allah, you don't believe in the message, you don't believe in the reports, then there's another hurdle you must cross before you cross this hurdle. You must first cross the hurdle of, is there a God? Thus, my dear brothers, is an important point actually. Sometimes you go somewhere, like I'm at the airport one day, and a lady comes up to me, why are you pressing your wife? My wife is wearing parda. So she wants me to discuss the virtues of parda with her. She doesn't even believe there's a God. How can I ever win that argument? The argument cannot start with parda. The argument must start with whether God exists. And after we come to the conclusion that God exists, and God is the one that made me, now comes the conclusion, don't I owe God something? And if there's something I owe God, is to wear parda, then I need to wear parda. Which is why there's something I want you to watch on YouTube. There's a French lady, she was the top rapper in France, and she decided to become Muslim. And when she decided to become Muslim, she started wearing hijab. And there's a beautiful interview in the interview when they ask her, why do you wear hijab? Her simple answer is, everything I enjoy, the sunlight, the air, everything, Allah gave it to me. So if all Allah is asking me is to wear hijab, that's why I wear it. You understand? So it all starts there. Either you believe this Allah, you don't believe this Allah. I'm wasting my time explaining niqab to you, and I'm wasting my time explaining mi'araj to you. The masla starts there by that order. Does God exist? The masla does not start here. And Allah knows this. My dear brother's final statement. Final statement. If you don't believe in miracles, then surely you don't believe in the Prophet Muhammad. Because the only way you know anybody is a Nabi or a Rasul is because he comes with miracles. The Prophet Allah says in Hadith, he comes to Bukhari, Hadith 4991, it's my final statement for the evening. There's no prophet that ever came. Except he was given a thing. The summer of it causes people to bring Iman in him. Meaning, he was given a miracle. So Nabi Musa left at a time when the people had reached the highest levels of magic. And then Nabi Musa brought true magic. Changing of reality. Which is why the magicians of Fir'aun, when they saw what Nabi Musa could do, they immediately embraced Islam. And when we study the related ayat and the related hadith, you would come to know that Fir'aun had them tortured to death after them. Why were they so firm on the Iman, having just embraced Islam a few moments before them? Because they were the masters of their science, magic, and they knew its limitations. So when the Prophet of Allah came, Nabi Musa, and he exceeded the limitations of their science, they knew, thus he is not in the ability of a man. This person must come from God. 
And that is why the Iman was firm. Believe in miracles makes your Iman firm. Nabi Isa came to a people that had mastered medicine, but there was a few sicknesses they couldn't cure. They couldn't cure the born blind. They couldn't cure the leper. They couldn't raise the dead. But all by the permission of Allah, Nabi Isa did. Nabi Isa cured the born blind, he was able to see. Nabi Isa cured the leper, he was, uh, that sickness went away. And Nabi Isa raised a few individuals from the death, from death, like for example the man known as Lazarus and Allah knows best. So the Prophet Allah, peace upon me, goes on and he says, And the greatest miracle that I was given was a revelation the Quran. Which Allah revealed unto me. And I desire to be the Nabi that has the greatest followers on the day of Qiyamah. Why the Nabi that has the greatest followers on the day of Qiyamah? Because every other Nabi came to a particular age. Nabi Musa, the age of magic. Nabi Isa, the age of medicine. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the age of information. So what needed to be his ultimate miracle? Information in the form of the Quran. And my dear brothers, in today's time, whenever we speak of the miracles of Nabi Isa, it is a historical report. Whenever we speak of the miracles of Nabi Musa, it is a historical report. When we speak of the ultimate miracle of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it is in our head. And it is in our heart. And we're supposed to be living it. So access to that miracle we have still today, inshallah, and the opportunity to come with Iman via that is available to you. And the opportunity to when the Prophet is proud of us on the day of Tiana by the following teachings is available to you. Allah make it easy for us all and end it.